Welcome aboard the Decade Bird. Stay tuned for an unabridged audio presentation from the Star Wars Expanded Universe. A long time ago. In a galaxy far, far, away. Star Wars. Tales from the New Republic. Edited by Peter Schweifer and Craig Carey. Read by Decade Bird Publishing. Conflict of Interest By Laurie Burns Standing on the steps of the Verquillian Imperial Governor's Hall waiting to present her fake credentials to the stormtrooper at the door, Selby Jared took another swipe at the sweat trickling down her temples and wished she'd been warned about the blasted stink. Just another, minor, detail intelligence had neglected to mention during the mission briefing, she thought. The city, the whole sweltering planet, reeked of Alotzi being stripped, pulped and simmered for refinement into Bacta. Of all the attacks that the New Republic team might face while helping Verquil's rebelling native workers oust the Empire, this obnoxious olfactory assault had never come up. She slanted a glance at the tall, dark-skinned man beside her. Before landing, the stiff, Formal collar of Major Cobb Vartos's business suit had been crisp and clean, but it had long since wilted in the suffocating heat. Grimy marks showed where he'd pried it away from his perspiring neck. Selby didn't even want to know what she looked like. Her own suit clung to her, and the thick auburn hair piled atop her head felt hot and heavy. I'm not sure which is worse, Vartos murmured to her, hooking a finger in his collar and giving it another yank. Breathing through my nose and smelling the blasted stuff or breathing through my mouth and tasting it. Selby had a definite opinion on that, but just then the stormtrooper at the door barked, Next. Vardo stepped up to the portal and handed the guard his forged ID. Carefully schooling her expression into the cool, professional mien of a corporate bidder, or at least as cool and professional as she could manage with hair sticking damply to her face and sweat trickling down her back, Selby did the same. The stormtrooper scanned the cards. Purpose of your visit? My associate and I are here to present a proposal to His Excellency, Governor Parco Ein, Vardos told him. Since the governor currently had a hall full of bidders waiting to present him with business proposals, Vardos didn't bother to add that the only proposal he and Selby intended to give Ein was, surrender or die. When Ein had advertised he'd be considering bids for the construction of a new Bacta refinery on Verquil, intelligence had deemed the situation too good to pass up. The planet's native workers, encouraged by the slow but steady reduction in imperial might in the three years since Indoor, had finally indicated their willingness to openly rebel. And in this case, the Republic's new allies would come with a bonus. Though Verquil was sparsely settled and a bit too far out on the rim to be strategically valuable. Selby knew the new Republic considered military support of the coup a small price to pay to bypass the hassles of dealing with the Bacta cartel and gain a direct pipeline to the medical resources. The governor's bid party offered the perfect opportunity to insert an intelligence team into his presence, combined with the military threat the fleet would present when it jumped into the system, orchestrating his surrender should be a snap. Selby felt another drop of sweat meander down her spine as the stormtrooper seemed to spend an inordinate amount of time checking their credentials. His white armor gleamed brightly in the sun as they stood there, sweating under his blank, black-visored gaze for what seemed an eternity. The uneasy silence lengthened. 
She exchanged a glance with Vardos and knew he was thinking the same thing when suddenly a voice behind them broke in. Excuse me, is there a problem? She turned. The new arrival, a lanky, fair-haired man dressed in the dark blue uniform of an imperial aide, regarded them quizzically from the sidewalk. The stormtrooper snapped to attention. Sir, they say they're here for the bid party, but I haven't been able to confirm their authorization to attend. I see, the man said, coming up the steps. Your names? He briefly consulted a small datapad. You're on the list, he confirmed. It's all right, sergeant. Let them pass. The stormtrooper nodded, stepping aside as the massive hall door swung open. Inside, marvelously cool air welcomed them, and a copper-colored droid dotted with tiny green, rusty-looking specks glided forward to take their travel bags. This awful humidity, Selby thought. Even the droids are affected. I'm Davin Quarrel, the man said, extending his hand first to Vardos, then to her. I'm His Excellency's aide in charge of the refinery project. Selby shook it, noting that Quarrel's grip was firm, with hard calluses ridging his fingers. Not a mere bit-pushing bureaucrat then, this man was accustomed to work, and quite a lot of it. Intelligent green eyes sized her up, as well. So, you're the two from Galfactorial, he commented as they boarded the turbo lift, en route to their rooms on the fifth floor with the other bidders. Your company has a reputation for doing good work. But, he cocked an eyebrow as the lift started to rise, I hear the refinery you people built on New Cove ended up coming in over budget. That true? Of course not, Selby said, suddenly grateful that whatever omission intelligence had made regarding the smellier aspects of refining Bacta, she had been thoroughly briefed on her cover story. Midway through construction, the client decided to change the venting system so the plant wouldn't vent to the outside. Obviously, redesigning at that point was difficult, but the client insisted, so the budget was readjusted and approved. She gave him a blandly professional smile. In the end, the project actually came in under the revised budget. I see, Quarrel murmured. I'm glad to hear that. His Excellency always appreciates a creative bit of number crunching. Selby looked at him sharply, uncertain how to interpret the remark. She decided to change the subject. If you don't mind me asking, how many other companies sent bidders for the project? That eyebrow quirked again. Curious about the competition? Not really, she thought. Concerned about innocent civilians. Although the crowd gave them more opportunity for cover, she didn't like having to worry about the bidder's safety. The mission had been carefully planned to be as bloodless as possible, but accidents could, and frequently did, happen. A little, she answered out loud. Actually, I wondered if there'd be an opportunity to present our bid to the governor in person. I find it's beneficial to personally explain the numbers to prospective clients. She caught his eye meaningfully, held the look. Our clients often find it rewarding, as well. Ah, Quarrel said, inclining his head knowingly. He understood the covert language of a bidder wishing to offer a bribe. As it happens, you'll be able to meet His Excellency later this evening, at a special reception we've planned for the bidders. And those who wish to, he hesitated, to privately discuss their bids with Governor Ein may make an appointment to meet with him. Perhaps sometime tomorrow? Selby considered. Tonight, 
Claris would help members of the Verquilian Resistance set fuses around the planet's main comm transmitter tower as her fellow operatives set in motion their own explosive plans at the hull. Tomorrow, she'd signal the fleet and then destroy the Imperials' only means of calling for backup once Selby gained entrance to Governor Ein's office to offer him the New Republic's bribe. Which, being a savvy public official skilled in the art of self-preservation, and further encouraged by the military might which would have just arrived to orbit persuasively overhead, his excellency would, of course, accept. She smiled at Quarrel. Tomorrow's perfect, she said. I'll look forward to it. And if it weren't for the necessity of keeping up her guard, she might have managed to relax and enjoy herself, at least a little, Selby mused that evening as she and Vardos stepped into the hall's open-air central courtyard where the reception was being held. If Verquil's dubious charms this afternoon had lived up to the planet's reputation as an outer rim backwater. Their comfortable, well-appointed rooms and this gracious gathering tonight could do a lot to change her mind. The sultry purr of smooth jizz poured over them, and from the looks of the buffet table along the far wall, the governor was a generous, even lavish host. With sunset, the jungle humidity had at last become bearable, and the decorative tile underfoot and the fancy, fashionable garb of the bidders would have been right at home in any of the corporate ballrooms on Coruscant. Except, it stank. Even in this beautiful setting, outside of the hall's blessedly closed air system, the smell of simmering alazzi was impossible to escape. Let's split up, shall we? Vardos murmured, eyes on the corner bar fountain spilling some kind of dark red drink into a shallow pool. It'll be easier to slip out that way. Not that he'd be slipping out for his reconnaissance of the hall until he'd thoroughly reconnoitered the reception, Selby thought, amused. After all, they did have covers to maintain. Sure, she agreed. I think I'll check out that buffet myself. Three hours, two plates, and endless bitter chit-chat later, she paused under one of the courtyard's graceful archways to glance back at the swaying dance floor. It had steadily expanded in direct proportion to the shrinking bounty of the buffet table and the governor's free booze supply. Bitters moving to the soulful wail of a bass veal filled nearly two-thirds of the courtyard, while the rest of the party had begun wandering through the arches and into the hall proper. Which made it a perfect time to do a little wandering herself. She didn't dare use the turbo lift beyond the fifth floor, where most of the bid party attendees had been given rooms. But even so, Finding the governor's office on the top floor proved no problem, as intelligence had very thoughtfully provided a map. Shoes in hand, she crept up the hall's quaint staircase, discovering and dismantling half a dozen security sensors before reaching her destination. It took only a moment to unfasten the tiny eavesdropping device, a silver-toned stud indistinguishable from the dozens of less useful ones decorating the neckline of her stylish blue evening gown. But getting the thing past the security sensors, sentry cameras, and the guard in front of Ein's office proved a bit more difficult. In the end, she was reduced to enlisting the aid of a housecleaning droid, which, having either not noticed the silver stud arcing through the air to plunk neatly into the governor's waste bin or programmed not to care, obligingly carried it right past the guard and deposited it under Ein's desk. Selby waited until the droid finished its housecleaning, repacked its cart, and disappeared into the turbo lift before she slipped back down the stairs to rejoin the reception. She never made it. Hurrying across the tenth floor's polished landing, Selby heard the turbo lift's doors unexpectedly slide open behind her. Burnin' stars, she cursed, stomach sinking. 
Did I miss a sensor? Still meters away from the safety of the stairwell, with nowhere to go and no choice but to brazen it out, she turned to face the new arrival. Davin Quarrel. They both stopped short in surprise. Green eyes swept over her, noting the shoes she held in her hand and lingering briefly on the gown's decorative neckline before settling on her bare feet. Selby, holding the hem of the dress nearly to her knees to facilitate her scurry down the stairs, hastily dropped it and covered her toes. When Quarrel looked up again, his eyes glinted, with suspicion, or amusement, Selby couldn't tell. Bitter Jared, he said politely. If you're looking for your room, I believe you have the wrong floor. Um, no. No, I don't, she said, thinking fast. That thumb pass in his hand, I mean, I appreciate your concern, but I'm not really lost. Quarrel said nothing. She hurried to explain. It's such a nice night, and the stars looked so pretty from the courtyard. I thought I'd go up on the roof and enjoy the view. He raised an eyebrow. Wouldn't taking the turbo lift be easier? Well, of course. But, she shrugged and played her hunch. It wouldn't take me all the way up, so I found the stairs and started walking. I see, Quarrel said, eyes dropping again to the shoes dangling from her fingers. As it happens, these stairs don't go up to the roof. Oh, Selby said, trying to sound disappointed. Well, it was just a whim. Never mind. She started to turn away, wait. She glanced back. Quarrel regarded her thoughtfully. It is a nice night, he agreed. And the view from the roof is spectacular. I can take you up there, if you like. Selby studied his expression, wondering what was behind the offer. Did Quarrel suspect her of lying, and want to get her someplace dark and private to quiz her more thoroughly, or worse? Or was it something far less sinister, just a simple invitation from a man to a woman to go stargazing? It bothered her, a little, that it had been so long since the last such invitation that she could no longer tell when one was being offered. The demands of working intelligence kept most people at arm's length, or farther. I ought to at least find out what he wants, Selby told herself. If he is suspicious, the roof might not be such a bad place to deal with the problem. She made herself smile brightly at him. Sure. I'd like that. The short ride up to the roof was made in silence, and outside the air was still and stiflingly warm, a shock after the comfortably cool hall. But overhead, a thousand thousand stars glittered like tiny jewels strung on garlands in the heavens, a spectacular sight, as Quarrel had promised. They stood near the carved stone railing, Selby carefully keeping just out of his reach, and gazed out over the city. She located the main calm tower rising out of a small ring of lights about a kilometer away, and wondered if Claris and her team had finished rigging the explosives. If all went as planned, by this time tomorrow evening Verkwill would be back in the possession of its original owners. Seem a long way off, don't they? Quarrel said. What? She turned, looked at him sharply. Who does? The stars, he said, giving her an odd look. He waved his hand in a gesture that took in the jeweled sky. They seem so far away, but in terms of interstellar trade, they're just a hop, skip, and a jump away, so close you can almost reach out and touch them. Oh, Selby said. Apparently he had brought her up here solely to stargaze. She looked up, too. The miracle of hyperspace, 
she quoted, not sure what else to say. Linking a hundred thousand worlds together in a galactic village. That it does, Quarrel agreed, gazing overhead. Which one's yours? Selby scanned the night sky for a glimpse of Avril, but the star's cape was completely unfamiliar. I don't know, she confessed, surprised at the absurdly pleased feeling the small talk engendered. It's out there somewhere. He smiled, too. Without that reserved, watchful expression, he looked younger, perhaps only a few years older than herself. Where are you from? She asked. Here, he said. Back to bread, born, and raised. Never even been off the planet. Really, she said, mind clicking over his words. If Quarrel was a native, then his parents had been among the original migrants who'd come to the planet as shareholders in Verquillian Bactico, a lone contingent which somehow managed to form its own enclave apart from the Bacta cartels. Quarrel's parents were probably among those workers who'd turned their backs on their colleagues and joined forces with the Empire when it had arrived to nationalize the company. And, given his position in the governor's office, no doubt he was among the ones who had looked the other way as their former co-workers became little more than slaves, no longer producing Bacta for their own profit, but for the imagined glory of the Empire. In short, the kind of loyal imperial citizen the rebelling workers she'd come to liberate widely regarded as a traitor. Selby reminded herself that, given her fake ID and the convincing packet of professional lies that comprised her cover story, Quarrel believed her to be a loyal imperial citizen herself. You're the right man to ask, then, she said, deliberately steering away from that topic of conversation. Does it always smell this, this bad here? Quarrel laughed out loud. I barely notice it, he told her, but then again, I've lived here all my life. I'm not sure I even have a sense of smell anymore. Lucky you. She grinned. The first whiff out the hatch just about knocked me flat. He laughed again. Verquil will never attract the tourist trade, that's for sure. He paused, staring out over the city. But while we won't ever be mistaken for the bright center of the universe, there are lots of things which could be done to improve the situation here, he said, abruptly serious. Such as? Selby asked, curious in spite of herself. Just how did Verquil's imperial masters envision molding the future of the planet they had stolen from its rightful owners? Quarrel looked at her a moment as if deciding how to answer. Then, apparently reaching a decision, he relaxed against the stone railing. Behind him the calm tower's distant lights cast reddish glints off his golden hair, and beyond the tower the absolute blackness of Verquil's vast Alazi jungle stretched to the horizon. The governor has several ideas, most of which are very sound. He began, and though Selby had expected no less, she was somewhat disappointed when he went on to recite the standard imperial line. She couldn't quite dismiss the nagging feeling he wasn't truly convinced though. So when he paused, she said, now. Tell me what you would do if you were in charge. Quarrel favored her with another of those long, assessing looks. Selby forced herself not to flinch as he stepped closer, narrowing the distance between them. You really want to know? He asked, voice low standing so close their shoulders brushed. Pulse abruptly pounding all senses alert to any sign of attack, Selby nodded. Quarrel stared at her intently a moment more. Then, slowly, he folded his arms across his chest and eased back against the railing. All right, he said, looking away. 
What I think is that a new approach is needed, an aggressive expansion that'll ultimately offer Virkwell more economic independence in the galactic community, give us more security, and address some of the concerns the workers have been voicing lately. He glanced over, gauging her reaction. Intrigued, Selby relaxed against the railing herself and settled in to listen. Encouraged, he started to go on, but was interrupted by a discreet beep. Excuse me a moment, he said, pulling a comm link from his pocket. Yes, what is it? Davin, it's Jorley, said a voice Selby recognized as belonging to a junior aide on Ein's staff. I'm sorry to bother you, but the reception's pretty much wound down except for a few party hards who won't take a hint. I turned off the fountain and got the droids stacking chairs, but they still won't leave. Should I call security? No, Quarles said with a sigh. Leave them to me. I'll be down in a moment. Repocketing the comm link, he looked at Selby ruefully. I'm going to have to cut this short. Duty calls. It always does, Selby said. She straightened up, too, wondering if perhaps, would it be all right if I stayed up here a little longer? It really is a beautiful view. Sorry, no, he said. You'd need a thumb pass to get down the lift, and I don't have any extras. This one's keyed to me, non-transferable. Oh. Okay. Not that she'd really expected he'd give her free run of the hall. Selby shrugged. Well, then. Shall we go? The ride down was as quiet as it had been on the way up, the brief moment of camaraderie gone. Quarrel courteously escorted her to her room, bid her a polite good evening, and strode away. Sternly resisting the urge to watch until he disappeared into the turbo lift, Selby shut the door behind her. This was one of the worst parts of the job, when an enemy showed himself not as an adversary, but a decent-seeming person who just happened to be serving on the opposite side. She sighed. In her line of work, it was easier to see everything in black or white, friend or foe, than to attempt sorting out all the shades of gray. Color blindness was often healthier, as well. Agents who hesitated to silence their foes often found that their newfound friends did not hesitate to silence them. Working intelligence meant keeping the battle lines clear, and the enemy firmly fixed in your sights. There was no room for anything else. Too bad, she thought. Something about Quarrel, his concern for the workers, perhaps, told her there was more to him than met the eye. Not that it mattered, of course. She knew where her duty lay. She sighed again, turned around. From the doorway connecting their rooms, Vardos regarded her with a frown. Everything okay? He asked. You were gone quite a while. Fine, Selby reassured him. Walking over to the bed, she sat down and began pulling out the decorative combs that secured the neat crown of curls atop her head. Auburn locks slipped down about her shoulders. We okay to talk here? I checked it out. We're clean. He took a few steps further into the room. Did you get it set? Uh-huh. Selby inspected the combs on the coverlet before her. Picking one up, she touched a fingernail to a certain spot and activated the receiver. They listened. Silence. She nodded in satisfaction. All quiet, as it should be. The eavesdropper awaited tomorrow. Suddenly, a faint squeak broke the quiet. She and Vardos exchanged a glance. 
Another squeak, accented by the scrabble of tiny claws. Selby grinned. His Excellency appears to have a skitter problem. Let's hope it doesn't have an appetite for shiny little snacks. They don't eat metal, she told him. It's about the only thing they don't eat. Good. He studied her briefly. So, what happened with that aid, Quarrel? He caught me coming back downstairs, she admitted. I thought there'd be trouble, but it seemed to work out all right. Vardos looked relieved. Well, if you had to get caught, good thing it was him. He's in a good position to bail you out. Selby frowned. What's that supposed to mean? Bail you out, cover for you. Make an excuse why you're someplace you shouldn't be. Vardos gave her an odd look. Didn't he ask what you were up to? I told him I was trying to get up on the roof to see the stars. And he bought it? He seemed to. She looked at him, still frowning. Why would he cover for me? Wait, let me get this straight, Vardo said. As far as you know he knows, you were just wandering around the hall because, he grinned, you wanted to go stargazing? That's what I said, she gritted. What did you mean? Sel, he's on our side, Vardo said gently. He's with the Verquillian resistance. She caught herself before her jaw dropped. He is? It took another moment to digest the news. Then he knows all about us, she said. He knew the whole time what I was up to. No, I don't think so, Vardo said. You know how these things are set up, Cell. She nodded, still taking it in. Members of resistance cells almost always had nominal contact with each other, and limited knowledge of what was going on in order to reduce liability. That way, if one rebel was compromised or caught, the damage to the overall group could be kept to a minimum. She thought about it a little more, recalling her initial impression that Quarrel wasn't quite what he seemed. That takes nerve, playing both sides that way, she said, rethinking their conversation on the roof in light of this new information. He's got a tough hull to patch passing himself off as a loyal imperial. So do we. Vardo said, rather tartly. And unless we absolutely need him for something, we're going to keep on treating him like he is one. Time enough after the coup to compare notes on your respective undercover careers, Cell. The admonition was hard to miss. Of course, she said, slightly hurt that he'd think anything else. You can count on me to put the mission first, sir. I know. He studied her a moment longer, nodded once, and changed the subject. So. Here's what the security setup on the lower levels looks like. He launched into a description of sensor panels, guard posts, and hidden cameras. Selby listened, grateful her brain was kept busy visualizing the hall layout rather than replaying that evening's encounter with Quarrel. Wondering if the duplicity inherent in carrying off his masquerade gave him any difficulties. Whether it was, lonely, living a life split between ideals and duty, unsure who to call friend and who to call foe but all too sure he could not let his guard down with either. Realizing the direction of her thoughts, Selby forced her mind back to the task at hand. As Vardos had said, time enough for that sort of thing later. Or perhaps there would have been, if things had turned out differently. Selby listened to the whispers from the tiny speakers concealed in her ornamental ear sculpts as she sped up to the governor's office the next morning. 
What she heard sent her stomach plunging as surely as if the turbolift's floor had suddenly dropped out from beneath her. Which, in a sense, it had. Claris, waiting at the calm tower for Selby's signal to hail the fleet, had just been captured. And in the short space of time that it took Governor Ein to be informed of the arrest, and for Selby to overhear it before the eavesdropper's signal abruptly cut off, their carefully crafted plan went to pieces. The loss of Claris shattered it as effectively as a change in cabin pressure microfractured a ship's brittle hull. For that first stunned moment, Selby felt panic freeze her mind as she watched the floor indicators flash past, carrying her ever closer to her meeting with the governor. Claris captured, herself only seconds away from the stormtroopers sure to be awaiting her arrival at Ein's office, then a hot surge of adrenaline thawed the frost and sent her brain scrambling to find a way to salvage the situation. Think, she ordered herself, damning the eavesdropper for cutting out just when she needed an ear in the governor's office the most. Was there any way she could stop the lift, get off it, and find a way to warn Vardos? She bit her lip. Without a thumb pass, no. Not before first making a stop on the governor's floor. The guard below had entered her destination, notified Ein's office she was on her way up, and keyed the lift for non-stop. But there are other ways of making an exit, she thought, glancing up to confirm the presence of a maintenance panel in the lift's ceiling. She could knock out the panel, climb into the shaft, and go, where? Her hand, reaching for the lift's controls, hesitated, and then, suddenly it was too late. The doors slid open. Selby froze. Two stormtroopers stood opposite the lift, blaster rifles resting imposingly on their white-armored shoulders in traditional parade ground stance. She stared at them. They stared back, seemingly in no hurry to take her into custody. Inside, Hope battled with caution. Could it be that they didn't know? She couldn't just stand in the lift forever. Taking a deep breath, she stepped out. Boldly, she announced, I'm here to see His Excellency. The stormtroopers just stared at her without responding, but off to the side a golden-eyed protocol droid snapped to attention. I'm sorry, but the governor is unable to see you now. It apologized in an officiously smug manner that made Selby suspect it delivered this particular speech quite often. Unexpected business has come up that requires his immediate attention. May I reschedule your appointment to another time? Oh, I suppose, she said, trying to look annoyed at the delay. Still not quite believing her luck, she agreed to a time and re-entered the turbolift. As it sped back down to ground level, she steeled herself to tell Vardos there had been a change in plan. As the mission's commanding officer, it would be up to him to decide what course of action that change required. For just a moment, she allowed herself to think about Claris, now in imperial custody, an intelligence operative's worst fear. Then the door slid open, and she set out in search of the generator room where Vardos waited for his signal to cut power to the hall. If they hadn't been before, the Imperials were monitoring electronic communications now for sure. She'd have to deliver this message in person. But as it turned out, she didn't have to. Vardos already knew. Hands in the air and a grim expression on his face, he stood pinned against one of the humming power relay boxes. He turned his head to look at Selby as she slipped in, and she had her own blaster out and in her hand before the situation really even registered. But the stormtrooper holding the blaster rifle on him didn't even glance her way. He didn't have to. Before she got her weapon up to firing position, 
a harsh voice from the side ordered her to drop it. Selby froze mid-aim and slowly turned her head to look. A short distance away, Davin Quarrel had his hands half-raised as he stood between two rows of power relays. Behind him, the second stormtrooper's blaster rifle now pointed in her direction. Drop it. Now. The trooper repeated forcefully. Selby risked another glance at Vardos. His eyes met hers, and in their grimly resigned depths she could see he understood her dilemma. As it stood now, with the whole New Republic team captured and the fleet not called, the mission was doomed to certain failure. Without the fleet to encourage his surrender, Ein and his stormtroopers would simply crush the rebelling workers, and the three, no, the four of them, counting Quarrel, would be interrogated and then most likely killed. However, if she went ahead and took a shot at Vartos's captor, it would probably result in her commanding officer's immediate execution. But if, and it was a big if, Quarrel over there was as quick-minded as he'd seemed and thought to divert the second stormtrooper, she just might manage an escape during the ensuing firefight. And if she got free, there was still a chance she could, somehow, call the fleet. You can count on me to put the mission first, she'd said to Vardos. She'd meant it. Raising the blaster, Selby fired. The next few moments were a blur. As she dove behind a metal control box that offered meager cover, the room lit up with blaster fire. Across the room, Vardos crumpled. Pinned in place and uncomfortably aware of the blaster bolts sizzling close all around, Selby kept shooting anyway until the first stormtrooper went down. Then, twisting to aim at his comrade, who was crouching behind a metal box of his own, a movement to the side caught her eye. It was Quarrel, edging stealthily along the wall toward their only means of escape, the door. Something else caught her eye as well, Davin, watch out. She shouted, and fired. The bolt sizzled into a small panel on the wall a scant few dozen centimeters before him. The lights blinked out, blanketing the room in darkness. And this was it, her only chance. As if on cue the door slid open, illuminating her path to freedom. Momentarily silhouetted, Quarrel slipped through to safety in the corridor beyond. Aiming a wild smattering of cover fire in the stormtrooper's direction, Selby got to her feet and darted after him. She almost made it unscathed. Just as she reached the door, a blaster bolt grazed her outstretched arm, sending jagged claws of hot pain streaking up to her shoulder and forcing out an involuntary cry as she stumbled into the corridor beyond. The door slid shut behind her, the faint sounds of the trooper's fire slamming uselessly against the metal barrier. Alerted by her cry, Quarrel turned back. Suddenly nauseated and dizzied by the burning pain, she faltered just outside the door and struggled to get her bearings. Which way? She managed from between gritted teeth. Quarrel hesitated, but far behind him down the corridor, two stormtroopers rounded the corner and the question suddenly became moot. Her arm felt engulfed in flames, but she managed to fire a few discouraging bursts their way before turning to run. As blaster fire echoed down the corridor, she felt more than heard Quarrel close on her heels. They hadn't gone more than 50 meters before he pushed her firmly to the right and slapped at a door panel there. Selby let him guide her, bursting into a long, narrow room with no doors other than the one they'd just come through. Where are we going? She demanded, pain making the question come out harsh. Somewhere safe, Quarrel said, just as shortly. He felt along the blank wall on the far end of the room while Selby restlessly prowled, scanning the room for possible avenues of escape. She was relieved to be out of the immediate line of fire, but with no apparent way out, that relief was sure to be short-lived. 
and the stormtroopers would be here any moment, turning back to quarrel. She was startled to see an old-fashioned swing door in the far wall where she was positive none had previously existed. Hurry up, he said, and proved the door wasn't a mirage by pushing it open and stepping into the darkness beyond. Selby hastened into the narrow passage beside him, and watched as he did something at a panel set in the back of the wall. The light streaming in the open door suddenly changed. When Selby looked through it to the room beyond, it was like looking through a gauzy curtain. She flinched as the door at the far side burst open. One at a time, two stormtroopers leapt into the room with weapons at the ready. But astonishingly, they spared no more than a cursory glance at the far wall. She realized then that they must see the same blank wall she'd seen when first entering the room, and looked at the gauzy curtain with new respect. Holoflage, some of the best holoflage she'd ever seen, concealed the secret door from prying eyes. I'm impressed, she murmured tightly as Quarrel shut the door flicked on a glow rod, and led the way down the dark passage. Her arm throbbed with each step. Very impressed. How did you know it was there? Old family secret. He glanced briefly over his shoulder. My grandfather was Corlin Quarl Deld. A moment later, the name clicked. Verquillian Baktako's principal owner, she said, and he nodded. Selby nodded, too, as the pieces fell more neatly into place. No wonder Quarrel masqueraded as an imperial while secretly plotting revolt. His family had owned the whole planet before the Empire took it over. She thought of the holoflage and felt a renewed stirring of hope. Got any other family secrets I'd like to know about? She inquired. Quarrel paused before a door. Beyond, the passage disappeared into darkness. Crouching, he shined the glow rod on a dusty keypad and punched in a series of numbers. A lock snicked, and he opened the door to reveal a tiny room. I might, he said finally, locking the door again behind them. But we need to figure out what we're going to do here. It's obvious that whatever plan you and your partner came here with has fallen apart, and my cover's been blown as well. At this point, just getting out alive seems the best we can hope for. That's not good enough. Selby shook her head. If I can get word to the fleet there's a chance we can still pull this off. Quarrel looked at her sharply. The fleet? There's a small New Republic battle force nearby waiting for a signal from Claris, or rather, she amended, a signal from me, before jumping in. Once it shows up, unless Ein has a Star Destroyer or two hidden in his back pocket, he'll have no choice but to surrender. I see, Quarrel said slowly. He gazed off a moment, thinking, then slanted her a faint smile. And no, he doesn't. The grin faded as his eyes went to her injured arm. Why don't you tell me what's going on while we take care of that burn? He suggested. We'll figure out where to go from there. The med pack he produced contained only the mildest anesthetic. So Selby was just as glad to focus on describing the mission as Quarrel gently cleaned the burn and slathered a viscous green gel over it. Unstabilized Alotzi, he said at her doubtful look. Not quite as effective as refined Bacta, but it'll certainly help. It did. The cool gel soothed the burn and, as it hardened, provided a protective coating which made bandaging unnecessary. Selby flexed the arm experimentally, relieved to find the movement elicited only a dull throb of protest. So, she said. What do you think? It's your arm. Coral raised an eyebrow. What do you think? 
The arm's fine, she said, giving him a faint smile and thanks. I meant, what next? Can you get me access to a subspace comm unit? He pursed his lips thoughtfully and sat back. Probably, he allowed, then paused. One question, though. What were the fleet's orders if it never got a signal? Send someone to investigate, or just go on home? They wouldn't abandon us, Selby said. They'd try to find out what happened. So someone would eventually show up to find out why the signal never came? They wouldn't abandon us, Selby said again, feeling a twinge deep inside that, on the uncertain chance she could salvage the mission, she had basically abandoned Vardos back there in the generator room. She knew that if she failed, intelligence would eventually send someone to investigate, but at that point the mission would simply mean extracting the surviving team members, if there were any, and pulling out. Vardos and Claris would have been lost in vain, the rebelling Verquillian workers would be purged, and the Empire would win, perhaps permanently. Without enough support from the workers who were left, the New Republic would probably not return. I see, Quarrel said. So it's call the fleet now, or never get another chance. Looks that way, Selby agreed. She hesitated. I'm sorry, this could get a lot messier than originally planned. If Ein starts rounding up workers, using them as hostages, we can still win, but victory may come at a higher price. Quarrel's cheek twitched. All things worth having usually do. There could be fighting, in orbit or on the ground, she warned. Will it be worth it to you? He looked at her. In his eyes, she saw grim acceptance. I want what's best for Verquil, he said. If bloodshed is what it takes. He looked away. I'll regret it. But I'll learn to live with it. Now. He abruptly changed the subject. I can think of three subspace comms we might be able to get to. Let's figure out which one would be best to try for. If she'd known of all the hall's hidden passages last night, Selby reflected as she followed Quarrel down a narrow corridor, getting up to the governor's office undetected would have been as easy as shooting Minox off a power coupling. The hall had proven a virtual warren of hidden passages. Quarrel's grandfather had been a careful, one might even say paranoid, businessman, which was fortuitous, given the present circumstances. It meant they could move within the hall with astonishing freedom, only needing to leave cover to call the fleet. Selby smiled to think that when the Imperials, no doubt monitoring outgoing subspace transmissions, came running to investigate the call, all they'd find were unconscious guards in an empty room. She and Quarrel would slip back into hiding to await the fleet's arrival before confronting Ein. We're almost there, Quarrel said quietly, pausing at an intersection. Before we go any further, I want to check the situation outside, see what we're up against. Sounds good, she murmured back. Lead on. He hesitated, then turned to look at her. I'd rather do it alone. He said. I know the passage system. You don't. And this way, if I get caught there'll still be one of us left to finish the job. Selby frowned. It made sense, but she did not particularly want to split up. Quarrel didn't have a blaster and would be unable to protect himself if he ran into trouble. She felt another twinge, remembering Vardos. Team members were supposed to watch each other's backs. She briefly considered giving him her own blaster for the reconnoiter, but decided not to. Intelligence had taught her to watch her own back first. 
Quarles' eyes dropped to the blaster, too, but when she didn't offer it, he didn't ask. You wait here, he told her. I shouldn't be gone too long. Selby nodded. He looked at her a long moment more, as if wanting to say something else, but then merely nodded, too. Turning, he started around the corner, watch your back, she said softly. He glanced back, raised that eyebrow. Always, he assured her, and strode away. Once he was gone, Selby leaned back against the narrow passage's wall and sighed. Alone with her thoughts for the first time since the shootout in the generator room, she could not get Vartos's face out of her mind. Had it simply been incredibly bad luck, his being discovered by the stormtroopers? Or had Claris already been persuaded to talk about her fellow operatives? Which reminded her, she reached up, slipping off the now useless ear sculpt. Holding it in her palm, she stared at it thoughtfully. Claris must have talked, she decided. For the eavesdropper to have cut out so quickly and unexpectedly after her arrest, the Imperials must have known exactly what to look for. She fingered the smooth curve of the metal, feeling it gently flex, then brought it up close to study the intricate scrollwork doubling as a tiny speaker. When Quarles' voice sounded from it, she froze. With hands that suddenly felt like ice, Selby held the device against her ear. Silence, only her pulse pounding in her head. She frowned, carefully flexed the ear sculpt again, and this time whatever weak connection inside the receiver that had apparently caused it to cut out now held. She listened, growing colder with each word. Tafno has promised backup within six hours, Ein was saying. Two dreadnoughts at least, maybe more. Convince her to delay making the call until then. When the rebels arrive, they'll find a fleet with a little firepower of our own waiting for them, not the easy pickings they expect. Yes, of course, Your Excellency, Quarrel said. But how do you propose I convince her? We are nearly in position to make the call now. She'll want to know why we should wait. A long pause. Selby could barely breathe for the tight feeling in her throat. Tell her that we've imposed satellite silence, the governor finally said. Due to this terrorist threat, I've ordered a temporary ban on outgoing subspace comm traffic. Tell her the satellite relays have been shut down, but that a very old, unofficial relay placed in orbit by your grandfather will be within transmissible range in, oh, about six hours. And that you, only you, know how to access it. Ein chuckled dryly. You know, Davin, you may have hated the old man, but you must admit being Corlin Quarldeld's grandson has put you in a unique position to realize his visions for Verquil. It's the only thing it ever has done for me, Quarl said. The rest of the time, I'd as soon forget the tyrant ever existed. I shouldn't worry about it, Ein said. No one holds it against you. You've already done more to make Verquil the success it is today than your grandfather ever could have. Your service to the Empire will long be remembered. When Quarrel rounded the corner, he found Selby waiting for him. He stopped short at the sight of the blaster she held pointed at his chest. His eyes took in the steadiness of her aim, then brushed past to settle on her face. Trouble? He asked. How is it, she began conversationally, that Corlin Quarldeld's grandson ends up on the same side of the empire that stole his home and destroyed his family's company? Quarl moved a few steps closer. Her aim did not waver. He stopped. Bactico has hardly been destroyed, he said. 
In fact, we currently have more business than we can handle. And the new refinery will increase both production and profits. I see, Selby said. Although determined to remain as cool about this as he, she felt her eyes narrow. Then you don't care what the Empire does to Verkwill, so long as the company gets its share of the credits. He raised that eyebrow, and she had to fight back a sudden, violent urge to wipe that calm look off his face. Those credits are what feed and clothe the workers, Selby. That's what a company is all about, providing goods or services for a price. To whom, it doesn't matter. Don't kid yourself that it was any different in my grandfather's day, and don't think your new republic's motives are any more pure. When it comes to running a company, the accumulation of credits is the bottom line. At least your grandfather came by the company honestly, she bit out. He bought the planet, built the refineries, brought in the workers. He didn't steal it from its rightful owners in the name of the empire and enslave its workers. He- Don't preach that rebel propaganda to me, Quarrel broke in sharply. He did do that, and worse, he did it in the name of free trade. At least when the empire took over, Verkwell began giving something back to the workers, not just producing credits to satisfy my grandfather's greed. He stopped, took a breath to compose himself. Do you know how he got workers to come to Verkwell? He continued, a little more quietly. Remember, this was before the Empire. People needed jobs, and they were willing to do almost anything to get them. To sell themselves into slavery, even. And so they did. In exchange for their passage here and the privilege of working in my grandfather's refineries, they signed on for ten-year terms, at the end of which they were promised a share of stock of the company they'd labored to help build. My grandfather called it indenture, he added bitterly, but it was slavery. Selby said nothing. Indentured servitude wasn't like being your own boss, free and clear, but it wasn't slavery, either. Both parties willingly entered into an agreement, and at the end of the contract. When the contract expired, most of the workers were so deeply in debt that even with their share of the stock, they couldn't get out, Quarrel said. Once they cashed out and paid off what they owed, there wasn't enough left over to leave. So they stayed. She frowned. How'd they get so far in debt? The company store, of course, he said. Most of the workers brought families with them, or married and started families once they arrived. My grandfather provided basic food and housing, soup kitchens and barracks, but anything else cost extra. A lot extra. It added up. By the time the empire arrived to nationalize Bactico, 90 out of every 100 workers were so deep in debt they didn't even get credit vouchers on payday. The wages were simply transferred straight to their delinquent accounts. He gave Selby a bitter smile. If the Republic really wanted to liberate the workers, it should have been here 25 years ago. Silence followed. What happened when the Empire took over? She finally asked. Quarrel's mouth twisted. Well, I'll say one thing for old Corlin. If he couldn't have the credits, he didn't want anyone else to, either. When he realized the Empire wasn't just going to come in and oversee the operation, that they intended to boot him out and run it themselves, he started erasing company records. Client lists, production reports, shipping contracts, and employee records. She nodded, beginning to understand. The Empire didn't know about his arrangement with the employees. That's right, he said. So when the Empire took over, 
Verquil stopped being a miserable little company planet run by a tight-fisted tyrant, and became what it was supposed to be, a place for these people to work and live. In the past 20 years, we've tripled our worker population and quadrupled our backed production, and increased our profits by a thousand percent. Verquilians are better off under the empire than they ever were under my grandfather, so don't imagine you're doing us any great favors by liberating us. It was true the Verquilians had not clamored to be free of the empire. Indeed, it had only been in the last two years or so, when the New Republic chased the empire out of the core and triumphantly claimed Coruscant, that the resistance movement on Verquil had even begun. During her mission briefings, Selby had formed the impression the workers might have been cowed, or content, a small voice now whispered, to labor for the empire forever if not for two things. One, that as imperial strength ebbed, it provided less and less in the way of support to its smaller possessions such as Verquil, and two, the loss of a major medical supplier at Chenny's last year had sent New Republic rabble-rousers to various imperial-held suppliers to see what kind of rebellion they could stir up. Verquil had stirred nicely. But that doesn't mean the workers aren't sincere in their desire to be free, Selby told herself. Just that it took our encouragement to give them the courage to revolt. She looked at Quarrel. If the Empire is forced to leave Verquil, you probably stand to inherit the bulk of the holdings. How can you possibly object to that? He shook his head. You just don't get it, do you? I want what's best for Verquil, not what's best for myself, but best for the company and the planet. And I believe what's best for it right now is the Empire. The workers don't agree. The workers don't see the big picture, Quarrel retorted. They're laborers, not administrators. At the moment, they can't see past the promises the New Republic's dangling in front of them like nerfs being led to the milking shed. Independence, he made it sound like a dirty word. You tell me where, anywhere, workers don't dream of being their own boss. But they haven't got the faintest idea how to actually do it. Without the Empire's guidance, they'll run this company, their livelihood, right into the ground, or make juicy pickings for the Bacta cartel. Then how much will their independence mean? They'll be free, Selby said. Free to starve, maybe, he shot back bitterly. She raised the blaster. Selby, think about it. He said warningly. The governor knows what's going on here. You can't win, but if you surrender now, I give you my word you won't be harmed. He took a step forward, eyes earnestly searching her face. Please, Selby. You won't get out of here any other way. It doesn't have to be like this. In her mind's eye, Selby saw Vardos held at blaster point by the Hall Stormtrooper. She thought of Claris, and the horror stories every intelligence agent had heard of the fate that awaited them at the hands of Imperial Inquisitors. She thought of Quarrel, and that in doing what he truly felt best for his people, he had to betray their confidence, knowing full well that for many of them it meant certain death. Black or white, friend or foe, she reminded herself. In this job, there was no room for anything else. Yes, it does, she said, and fired. Thirty-four hours later, leaning against the stone railing of the hall's roof and staring down at the dancing flames of a celebratory bonfire in the street below her, Selby reflected that, for having salvaged success from such certain failure, she should be in a much brighter frame of mind. Listening to the revelry going on below, she wondered at the absence of her usual satisfaction at the successful completion of a mission.
She didn't doubt the New Republic had done the right thing, bringing about the liberation of Verquil and restoring Bactico to its native workers. A populace held in thrall, either to an empire or a business dictator, needed to be set free. But for the first time in her years of being involved in such liberations, it occurred to her to question whether the New Republic had done it because it was the best thing for the planet and its people, or because a direct pipeline to Bactico was the best thing for the New Republic. She could not forget Quarrel's prediction, that the Verquillians, faced for the first time with self-government and the running of a business, would be crushed under the weight of their new responsibilities. To help ease their transition, Selby had been told the New Republic planned to provide advisors to help the fledgling businessfolk find their economic feet in the galactic community. She frowned, bothered by this train of thought. New Republic advisors to Verquil somehow sounded too similar to the same sort of advice the Empire had dispensed. She half-wished Quarrel, who had the experience to run the company and, by birth, the right, had chosen to stay and help. But released from the hidden passage where she'd left him bound, only a certain darkness in those green eyes betraying the feelings he kept from showing on his face, Quarrel had elected to leave Verquil with the rest of the Imperial interlopers. Once the workers learned what he'd done, it was painfully clear that they would never trust him again. So? A voice cut into her brooding. It's almost time to go. She turned. Vartos's dark skin blended into the shadows around the turbolift, but she could see the faint gleam where his eyes reflected the starlight overhead. Both he and Claris had survived their captivity, although Vardos had required a few hours in a Bacta tank to fully recover. Selby found that somehow ironic. Yes, sir, she replied. I'll be right down. Vardos nodded and stepped back into the turbo lift, leaving her alone. Selby turned back to the railing, eyes again drawn to the bonfire below. Verkul celebrated its freedom tonight, but how long would its jubilation last under the pressures of its new responsibilities? She sighed. She would not be around to find out. She had done her job, done it well, and now it was time to forget the things Quarrel had said and move on to the next assignment. Black or white, friend or foe, she reminded herself. Under the Empire, Verquil had been black. Under the New Republic, it would be white. It might be true that Verquil's future most likely held shades of gray, but in her line of work, it was best not to look at those shadowed colors too closely. Turning away, Selby took a deep breath. She grimaced at the stink, the awful smell of the Alazzi simmering in the refineries. It permeated everything, and after just four days on Verquil, she felt as if its stench had somehow soaked right through her skin and taken up permanent residence in her heart. She feared it would stay with her forever. Thank you for listening to this unabridged audio presentation from the Star Wars Expanded Universe. The Decade Bird will fly again soon.